This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a 1,000 tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and L.A. bid on iOS developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average iOS developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they also give you a $1,000 bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the iFreaks link, you'll get a $2,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept a job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash iFreaks. This episode is sponsored by Buddy Build. Have you ever run into the issue where you have an application deployed in the wild, it crashes, and you have no idea what happened? If your app ever crashes, Buddy Build will actually record the frequency, affected users, and traces back to the exact lines of source code that caused the crash in the first place. It gives you even better visibility into crashes with Instant Replay, a video recording that shows exactly what your users were doing when the app crashed, giving you the exact steps needed to reproduce the issue. Go check them out at BuddyBuild.com. For a free trial, go to devchat.tv slash buddy. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 167 of the iFreak Show. Today on our panel, we have Andrew Manson. Hello from Salt Lake City. Lane Mosley. Hello from Lehigh, Utah. I'm James Zuber. We have a guest today, Orta Thoreau. Hey, everyone. I'm over in New York City. So if you hear, like, sirens and honks, well, that's just the city. Very cool. The wonderful New York ambiance. <laughs> yeah. It really does add, you know, a hint of color to a good podcast and recording session. It's all about the good level of energy. So, Orta, we brought you on the show to talk about CocoDocs. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, CocoDocs was my first major contribution to the open source community, probably three years ago now. There was a, a pretty glaring problem in the amount of open source libraries that we had at the time um, in CocoaPods. That was people were not actually documenting really anything. They were just shipping code out to anybody in the world. And when you got it, you had to just kind of dig around inside the source code to try and figure out what was going, like how it all came together. So what I did was I built a system that would automatically document all of your uh, library code and then put it up on the internet for you and thereby like forcing everybody to have to accept that the code that they are writing is going to be documented publicly. Uh, this system eventually got integrated into the CocoaPods website. It provides a lot of the foundational systems that uh, give us a lot of uh, tools to be able to do things like uh, rate whether it's a good library or not. Um, and all of those came from this one core concept of like finding out ways in which you can generate documentation for people's source code. Do you consider CocoaDocs sort of... I know, it, I know it's integrated with the CocoaPods website and, and stuff, but do you consider it sort of a... A separate thing from the CocoaPods? I think originally I definitely did. Originally I, I called it a sister project to CocoaPods, but now like it's so integral with the way most people browse and explore pods that um, realistically pretending it's a separate project isn't a very good idea. So a lot of the core developers on CocoaPods also contribute to CocoaDocs now in order to make sure that things are running and that uh, that it that it's pretty fail safe. Uh, it's a part of our, of, of all of the infrastructure that we built around CocoaPods. CocoaDocs is the most difficult to maintain because it's a it's a hosted Mac service that has to always have the latest versions of Xcode. In fact, it has to have every version of Xcode, and all these things are like security holes. And hosting a Mac Mini on the internet is not 
a particularly good idea in general anyway, because it's pretty unstable. So, yeah, we have to consider it part of CocoaPods, specifically so that it's not just me doing it after three years trying to maintain something used by hundreds of thousands of people. Yeah, that would get a little bit unwieldy. You need multiple versions of Xcode. So is Xcode actually generating the documentation and you're throwing it up on the, the website? A lot of these things can be prefixed with, well, it depends. But effectively, if it's a Objective-C source code, if it's the majority Objective-C source code, then it's actually all the documentation is generated by regular expressions on Objective-C, H, and N files. But because of the complexity of Swift and because of the tooling, like things like SourceKit, it was then possible to actually have not Xcode, but uh, LLVM generate all the documentation tokens, if you will. And so there's a project called Jazzy, which pulls out all of these uh, documentation tokens and then converts them into a documentation format in HTML that's very similar to how Apple structures their documentation. And so at this point, CocoDocs has to have as many versions of Xcode as possible in order to support, you know, Swift 1 libraries, Swift 1.2 libraries, all of these different things, because they're all shipped with Xcode, not singularly as a part of the tool chain. So right now, if you shipped a, a CocoaPod that was uh, Swift 3, well, I still haven't put Xcode 8 on it yet, so it won't actually be able to document it yet, because there's no source code parser for it that Jazzy could then work with. So I have to maintain every single version of Xcode, ideally, at least every single version, every major version that ships a source-breaking version of Swift, if you get what I mean. I was just about to ask you about Jazzy, because I know you were using Apple Doc originally, before Jazzy existed. Have you switched over now to just using Jazzy? I feel like we're close. I keep pretty close eyes on Jazzy. I've not contributed too much myself other than, like, well, with CocoDocs, we need blah, blah, blah uh, in order to get everything running. But I think very soon we'll be able to just switch all documentation to Jazzy. Some of the, that's kind of good and kind of bad because Jazzy has to compile documentation. It takes significantly longer than Apple Doc does. Last time I tried to run all documentation for every single uh, version of every single pod, which I think is like roughly 100,000 individual versions. So that's documenting 100,000 pods, full stop. Uh, it took almost a month just running on a machine in my office. Uh, so moving them all to Jazzy may take two or three months, roughly, at a guess. It's hard to entirely estimate. So when I do make that decision, I have to like get some infrastructure ready that could continue a, a job for that long. So just stay in your office, and every time it stops, restart it. And, you know, <laughs> the yeah. going. Yeah, that's how I do, like otherwise that's just like uh, i think i use host my mac oh, oh no mac mini colo that's who we use at the moment now they're really good and that's like our main CocoDocs server but then yeah i've just got one on my desk that i just use to like run a few batch jobs every time you know a, a new swift comes out i know which pods need updating then i'll just jam it through on that rather than try and do it on the big one online yeah, yeah. Mac mini Colo's great. yeah another shout out to mac mini colo we use them for a uh, ci server they do a really good job. I've had zero problems since I migrated to them. I'm pretty sure the only times anything's gone down is because of my code. So um, you said that CocoaPods and CocoDocs are pretty, you know, much married together now. But is there any other way to get your code or library documented with CocoDocs? Uh, no. There, it is, I mean, well, uh, 
kind there, of. There used to be a way, but you don't support it anymore. <laughs> it's just that slowly and slowly, the amount of tools necessary to run Cocoa Docs has become like non-trivial. So, like, you need all these different pieces. Like, you know, you need to have a the most recent version of Carthage in order to make sure that like Cocoa Docs's Carthage checking abilities are, are working. There's a bunch of other things that you need to install via Homebrew. And so for other people to use CocoaDocs locally, it doesn't make too much sense when you can just say, here's this one command you can run in Jazzy, and then you can build something similar, but not have like some of the extra kind of network effect that you get from CocoaDocs, but you, you can host it yourself on your GitHub pages, for example. So how does that work if you've got a private CocoaPod repository? How would you set up CocoaDocs, or can you? You can. This one is complicated because of those moving parts. So you'd need a, an internal Mac Mini that would be, well, on Mac, that would need to receive webhooks from your specs repo. So your private specs repo would send a webhook to the CocoDocs server. That would trigger a build that internally we send it all to S3. So it would trigger a build of like either on Jazzy or either on um, AppleDoc, depending on whether you've got AppleDoc installed or whether it's a Swift library or not. And then they would go up to S3. So I guess if you've set your access rights correctly on S3, then it would just go up and be private to anyone with that, with those access rights to the bucket that you're sending these things to. So it's a, it, it's relatively arduous because I've only had one other person really try and get an internal version of CocoaDocs running. I still feel like that's something that somebody somewhere is going to care enough to build, but they may be able to build a simpler version of CocoaDocs than actually just run their own things. I don't know how many people are going to be interested in like the quality metrics and things like that that CocoaDocs gives you in uh, like internal on their internal stuff. If I could set up one of these Docker things, then it, I bet that would be really easy. And at one point, I do need to learn how to do that. So CocoaDocs might be a good place to do it then, I think. So you talked about quality metrics. What metrics do you have? I don't remember all of them by heart, but some of them are relatively simple, which is like, does this pod have a readme that is, you know, relatively complex and has images? Thus, we say that this is probably a good library. You know, is there a change log? What is the average lines of code per class of the file? Uh, does it have tests? Does it support Carthage? Does it support Swift Package Manager? What's well, documentation? We check to see the overall structure of documentation and try and give a percentage of how well documented the public API is. And all of these like individual scores that go towards a like a thing that we call the quality index, which like tries to estimate whether this is a good library or not by looking at the code that we've got in front of us. One thing I think you do is you actually publish the criteria yeah. for those. And I think that turns out to be pretty pretty valuable, pretty good thing to do because I know as a, as a library author, I, you know, put a library up, I see the quality index, I have done this, and I've seen it, and thought, oh, that's a little low, I bet I can get that up, so I go look at your metrics, and then, you know, sort of do the work that's needed to, to get a better score, and I think it actually encourages people to do the thing, I mean, and they're not just arbitrary fake things, right, they're having yeah. good documentation, and having unit tests, and yeah. whatever, so that, I think it's a cool thing that you're doing there. Thanks. Part of that that I spent quite a lot of time on was trying to make it so it's not negative. Um, all of these QIs, uh, apart from one, uh, are effectively ways of saying, like, your project is good, but if you do this, then it will be better for the community. The only one that isn't probably is the GPL, where it says if you've got the GPL as your license, then we actually subtract some points because 
it's very complicated, the rules around app stores and GPL code. So we were trying to discourage that. Do you have pitchforks, people with pitchforks staked outside your office <laughs> for this? Shocking. I know. Uh, the other one that uh, is a little bit questionable, but uh, it comes up every now and again, it's like Objective-C++. They take some points off those libraries, too, if you've got tons of that in there. <laughs> oh, we give you points if you use Swift uh, on that subject. But those are just like, you know, most of us are Objective-C or Swift developers, and suddenly to introduce another third language that is like known to be more complex and takes longer to compile, maybe you should only be using that if you're very sure about it. But I don't think very many people choose to use Objective-C++. You know, it's it's more of a, we have to because we have a C++ library we're wrapping. Or maybe there are. I don't know. There are definitely people who use Objective-C++ because they like some of the C++11, specifically C++11 features. Yeah, I agree. There's definitely good reasons for it, too. But as a community, like, in general, we don't do it. And we've had the ability to for years. I was My university projects, like, seven years ago, was built on Objective-C++. I mean, it worked, but I wouldn't want to show it to people anymore. <laughs> I think you've made the right call. I was just regarding what James said. It's people like, uh, you know, auto pointer, that kind of thing. Yeah. It's basically sort of like type inference and, and other things. I, I'm not a C++ programmer. I'm happily not a C++ programmer. <laughs> Me neither anymore. I'm spending all day in JavaScript. I think it's crazy. You know, so I, I, I don't actually really use CocoaPods. The tool. Yeah. Well, that's not meant as a value judgment. I just, I just don't. Yeah. But I, I use Cocoa Docs a lot. I love Cocoa Docs. And in fact, the thing I use it for the most is to read documentation for my own libraries. And and I and one of the ways I do that is through Dash. Yeah. So yeah. Dash has built-in support for uh, documentation that's on Cocoa Docs. Yep. I guess where I'm going with this discussion is I think you guys on the on the CocoaPods team have said that you would essentially be happy if the Swift Package Manager eventually got to the point where CocoaPods was not really such a necessary thing anymore. Because yeah. after, after all, you were filling a gap that some might say Apple should have already filled. So what I'm saying is I hope CocoDocs lives on, even if CocoaPods eventually, you know, years from now, is not such an important thing anymore. Because I really do think CocoDocs fills a, a separate and, and really valuable niche. That's a really good point. Someone brought up to me recently, it's not too much work from where I am currently to actually start supporting like any Swift package. So I did come up with a system that would allow people to do that. So it would uh, it would use the same kind of webhook system. It wouldn't be like you can't have an automatic centralized system for doing it anymore. But we would be able to handle webhooks from you know tags, new tags on libraries that then could automatically pull it in from CocoDocs and it could generate. It's definitely feasible. I could pull it off in like maybe a day or two if I've got the Swift package manager parsing and stuff going right for Jazzy. Well, I, I hope you do that. Of course, the Swift package manager is still not ready for usable. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but hopefully, this time next year, like it will be. And um, Xcode nine will be like finally package management support. And by that point, we'll probably be all in a pretty good position to be prepared for that too. So, when did you um, start Cocoa Docs? Was it a long time ago? I don't really know the kind of the origins of when it started. I think it was 2011. Uh, yeah, it feels like about that kind of time period. I just started thinking that CocoaPods needed some design work, and so I wanted to get in with the the team in order to figure out like where I could do some damage. 
And so I felt that documentation would be a good place to start and I could experiment with some of the design and seeing what people thought through that. I remember just like hacking in bed night after night, having my, uh, my laptop run the documentation overnight to then see what like AF networking looked like in the next morning. It was fun. Yeah, that's super cool. And can you think of a time or a moment when, you know, you latched onto it and thought, you know, this is going to be a huge thing? Yeah, it was when AF networking changed all their documentation URLs to switch to Cocoa Docs. And like I sat there and I thought, okay, this, this means that like I have to take it seriously. So, you know, have to write some tests for this, have to start like turning it into a, a software project rather than a hacker, you know, a quick hacker and hack together idea. I was also like, I'm still paying for CocoDocs myself personally. CocoDocs, the S3 stuff, so all the hosted documentation because it's statically generated, probably cost me about twenty to twenty-five dollars a month, which I think is really cheap for such like essential infrastructure. Yeah, that's that's pretty awesome, actually. Yeah, so that's actually how I've been monitoring how big CocoDocs is in general. Like, how much did it cost me per month for my S3 bills? It's never got critically bad, if you know what I mean. Did you ever have any scaling challenges as it as it grew? I know it's kind of statically generated content, but were there any times when you know there were some scaling issues? Yeah, definitely. It was the introduction of Jazzy, and every time a uh, a major Swift version comes out, then we get a ton of requests in the form of like you know lots of new pods for the new Swift versions that you know lots of people have just done at the same time and shipped all at the same time. And so suddenly we have tons and tons of Xcode concurrent processes going on. That's usually when it gets hard for us. And sometimes I think it's Amazon that always ship somewhere between 15 to 20 pods at the exact same time. Um, and so like you can just see the, the fan turn on uh, effectively on the, on the machine as it slows down because I always get a notification that something's off. So the, the problem isn't necessarily with, you know, the amount of pods. But it's more the throughput uh, and the constant permanent generation of documentation. Because Swift libraries can take quite a long time to generate through Jazzy, especially if you're targeting multiple platforms. So, like, say Moya, the networking library, or like RX Swift, they target Watch, they target OSX, iOS, TVOS, and each one of those targets has to be generated separately in order to de- uh, get the documentation out before consolidating them all at the end. Uh, you could be compiling the same library four times before it can even start to do any documentation. It could take a long time. That's pretty great. I know, you know, most server guys, they look at graphs or get alerts, but you, you listen to the fan and you know, <laughs> yeah. you know when it's working hard. <laughs> yeah. It's, like, it's getting warm in here. <laughs> you're just like so close to those servers that you just know. Yeah. The you know, Wi-Fi is pretty reliable in my office. It's kind of useful to have this stuff going. Or is, this a, is this a home office or did you no, have an employer? employer office. Okay. We so have okay a, with this. Yeah, they just let me do whatever I want generally. You know, I, I, we we say sponsored by Artsy on some of these projects, so it gets us a lot of you know developer cred. That was actually my question. I know you work for Artsy as your regular job, and it seems like you do and contribute to a lot of open source development and, and I just wonder how, how that works out with them if they sort of sponsor it or if they let you work on it on, during work time or if it's this is all you do as program. It's a little bit of both. I've kind of been at Artsy now for five years and we've become like we've gone from being tiny to being pretty big. 
Uh, during that, I've accrued quite a lot of like political power to get like the freedom to kind of work on. You know, I've been working on a project called Danger for the last few days to try and like polish up this thing that's lasted me nine months of my spare time. Uh, the company generally knows that the stuff that I'm working on helps the company because it's usually a very pragmatic. Like Cocoa Pods obviously helps us because we're consumers. Uh, Danger helps us because we we use that too. It's a it's a quick command line tool that makes it easy to run uh, CI rules. Like, you know, you should have a changelog entry or you should include uh, labels on a PR. And so generally our attitude towards it is you should do what you need to do because you're in the position to know the most amount of, of like what you can do to make the most impact. And for me, a lot of the times that is like, contributing to open source to build my tools better, which is why I've been enjoying React Native because I've been like, contributing back to a bunch of these like actual editors and things like that in order to build better systems. Cool. That's a good good spot to find yourself in, I think, as a an engineer, at least if you want to be able to work on open source stuff and stuff that's sort of outside of the direct things that your company is doing. I'd love to get you back on the show to talk about danger sometimes. Yeah. Definitely. Danger's a fascinating one too. So yeah. It's a good call. So you said you're working with React Native, like developing apps? Yeah, we're adding, um, so we've got a pretty big uh, iOS app called Eigen, which is like our kind of one of the big things that we show off as being like his big open source app. And slowly and slowly, it's taken more and more developer time to build features. So we had a project to try using React Native. It's a little bit complex because in order to understand why we wanted to do, use React Native, you have to understand two other types of technology which I'll just skip over for this moment. But effectively, it means that uh, we can make the exact networking requests we want uh, from servers, as well as have no need to use models, uh, which should make this a really interesting type of technology. But as a developer, it's a really kind of reform way to build. Uh, you've, I've, you know, I was an Objective-C developer for about 10 to 14 years. And uh, as, as Swift kind of tightened a lot of the... the the, the structures around the your data types going back to JavaScript is crazy because suddenly you just you can just do anything to anything because nothing is anything and everything is nothing. It's typeless sometimes, but sometimes think, it is. I think you need to make a T-shirt that says JavaScript. Nothing is everything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it's a fascinating programming language, and I find it crazy how popular it is in the sense of like it's brilliant. So many people have got behind this one thing that does that. You know, you can get embedded systems that run JavaScript, and for for teaching people, it means that you can teach them one thing and they can use it everywhere. So I haven't used React Native for a while. This is totally off topic, but I tried it out like two years ago or whenever it came out, came out. and I was like, ah, eh, you know, this has a long ways to go. I'm gonna just shelve it for now. But your thoughts at this moment, much better. Yeah, probably. I'm gonna, I'll echo probably that one. Um, I'm currently doing quite a bit of, I spent, I gave myself a two day hack, hackathon right now for porting all of our React Native. So that's roughly three engineers of three months and one of six months to Android. And I got it almost entirely done in less than two days. Amazing. Yeah, exactly. And it's like the Android stuff is a bit rough, but like that's just not something you could do anywhere else. And I, you know, I feel like I understand the code base and I feel like I have 
don't know that I understand the stuff that's going on, even though I don't understand Android too much yet. So that, that's a big, big plus from my perspective. But there's definitely edge cases, and maybe not even edge cases, definitely problems. But if you want to work at a higher level of abstraction, sometimes you just have to go down a few levels and try and fix some of these things. Yeah, that's super cool because, you know, if you were to rewrite three months of three engineers work on Android, like it would take six engineers, six months or something, you know, like, so that, that's yeah. pretty amazing that in a couple of days you can see great results. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I was very impressed. So it's probably going to make me the uh, Android lead at this point, unfortunately. Two, two days of training and you're ready. Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there any way we can now bridge React Native and Cocoa Docs together? I, Do they have anything in common? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, yeah, so this is maybe it's not a bridge, but yeah, Cocoa Docs is, of course, focused or is only for iOS, well, for Apple platforms, uh, yeah. libraries. I guess my question is is two parts. Is Cocoa Docs similar to projects that are available on other platforms in the same way that Cocoa Pods is? I mean, they're the package managers on almost every for, for almost every big development platform. Are there analogs to Cocoa Docs and other platforms? And then also with Swift going cross platform, I wonder if Cocoa Docs maybe has a opportunity or you have a plan for that to sort of expand the, the Swift sort of documentation platform instead of Apple platforms library documentation. <laughs> I think both of those are really interesting questions. So the first one is yes, in general, most uh, most languages. I mean, I spend a lot of time in Ruby, um, and so I was influenced by something called RubyDoc, which has the exact same premise, but also supports you know you can set a GitHub address instead of just a, a, a gem or just a pod, if you will. Realistically, I sometimes think that I would love to leave a gap for someone else to fill. Like the Swift package manager, no, sorry, the Swift version of Cocoa Docs. Now it's a problem that I've been working on for three years, and maybe someone with a fresh perspective could build it better, faster, and do it as like here is a definitive example of what a Swift server looks like. Especially as pretty soon Jazzy is going to be working on Linux, and so the thing that forced me to use a Mac Mini on the server has gone away. And so suddenly you could actually, you know, put a, a Heroku box up that just does all the documentation and someone else could probably do it faster, simpler, and it could be an example of, you know, how you can build great things in Swift. Well, that's a cool idea. And I, I think that's actually a really good attitude on your part. And you, you also mentioned, I mean, of course, there's there are opportunities on a huge scale for this, but you mentioned that, that CocoDocs was sort of your first big open source project that you did and it certainly gave I mean you now or I I know you because I know how much you contribute to open source so it'd be cool if somebody came along and, and made Swift doc their big contribution. Yeah, I think so. And if if they do, um they should get in contact because I will do everything I can to help. You you mentioned that you still you still pay for the the hosting for Cocoa Docs which surprises me and makes me feel a little bad like <laughs> i should send you some money because i use it and you know i'm sure that's true of a lot of other people uh do you, is, is there some plan i mean why, why are you still paying for it why not uh, come up with a way for it to be sustained by the community i think money in open source is a very very complicated topic but for me in general like a head of mobile at a 
venture capital funded company that lets me work on all these interesting things and also happens to pay me pretty well. Like the idea of losing twenty five to thirty dollars a month on something that I genuinely believe in. I have subscriptions to like Things that I must cost about that much that I use significantly less than I use Cocodocs. I think it's totally worth it for me still to just pay for it all. I don't have to try and persuade like a company to sponsor it for X amount of years or whatever. I do work with a company called Button here in New York, and they will pretty often pay for the Mac Mini hosting, which like keeps the service ticking. But like a lot of the CocoaPods and Cocoa Docs S3 infrastructure, I just pay myself because it's not that expensive enough and it's a lot simpler if it's just me. It does have that direct dependency on, you know, if I get hit by a bus, then uh, someone has to try and find their way into my account. But I have workarounds for that too. Well, don't get hit by a bus. That's the easiest <laughs> Right? <laughs> my fiance tells me to not die all the time. So I'm not allowed to die. My wife tells me the same thing. <laughs> so yeah, no, I mean, there's, there's, we have that problem with CocoaPods a lot too. You know, there's very big companies that use CocoaPods and are very interested in making sure that it continues to exist. But we don't particularly need any more money. Most of our infrastructure costs way under, like, maybe, it probably costs us about two or three hundred dollars for the entire thing. Maybe per month, maybe less. It depends. I don't see how much Heroku costs us because they have a credit card that automatically just gets it paid because they sponsor it. And when you contrast that to other dependency managers, which cost in the tens of thousands range to like NPM, which will cost in the hundreds to maybe millions per month, CocoaPods does it all very, very cheaply. And so we can do it with very small amounts of like our own personal money. And to some extent, I think that keeps us quite focused on like only doing small things, only well, not exactly small things, but only applying new infrastructure when it's like very, very necessary, and trying to use, like use our resources as best as we can. I'm not sure I have any any more questions. I really want to talk to you about Danger. <laughs> I saw that I saw that you released it. Uh, yeah. Yet I don't know yesterday or the day before or something like that. But it's it, we don't have time to talk about danger, so I definitely want to get you back. Yeah. Hold on, I haven't heard of this. Can you just give like a quick summary? Danger coming soon. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the way I describe it is, you should stop saying you forgot to in your pull request. So for us, uh, RDC specifically, to give you some hard examples in our iOS app, we always want to make sure that when a pull request comes in. Uh, and there's uh, app changes that you have a chain log entry for it. We want to make sure that you, your documentation has good spelling. Uh, we want to make sure that um, you're not introducing code that is uh, hard to lint using in Swift. And so we, we wanted to apply all these processes to our team, but the problem was uh, we didn't have a way to automate that because we kept having to remember as, as individuals in every single code review session that you needed to do this. So we built a system called Danger that allows you to generate your own rules around like making sure that there's a message in the pull request and it, it, it feeds you a bunch of data. So that's like pull request title, the git diff, 
how many lines of code have changed, what files have been modified, added or deleted, you know, what is the GitHub author? And you can use all these different bits of information to generate your own rules about whether something passes, fails, or needs a message back. Uh, for example, in our blog, when you make a new blog post on the RT blog, it will do a full spell check and it will also look for common prose errors and it will just tell you back in the pull request those things via plugins to danger. Awesome. That's very cool because, I mean, most teams of a certain size realize the importance of these things, you know, having good quality code and documenting, but no one wants to be that person who's constantly reminding people on the pull requests. It's just not a fun thing to do. So yeah. it's cool to have something that's un- automated. Yeah. One of my colleagues specifically said one of the best things about Danger is that it's automated. And that, like, it lowers the barrier to you putting those things in because you don't have to be the person that's always, ugh, change log entry. And then you have to put a new, make a new PR fixing it. Uh, you get feedback much faster that way, too. Very cool. To be continued. <laughs> <laughs> nice. It's a good collaboration with Felix Krauss, too, the guy that makes Fastlane. I've been working with him on it quite a lot. Oh, I didn't realize that. Well, I sort of realized that because I think I saw his tweet about it. Or something. I don't know how he does everything he does. Yeah, dude, it's fast. It's one of those interesting things that once you start building the tools for yourself, it becomes significantly easier to build the next tool because you just kind of take it out of the shell of the last one. A lot of Felix's things just came out of, I started with something, and then I added it later, and then, oh, wait, so there's a problem in this domain that I can reuse some of my stuff. And so suddenly he has, he has the ability to, you know, fix something that has been, you know, a problem for a very long time because he just happens to already have the, the core infrastructure to get ready to do it in the next one. I think that's really nice, and I think he's done a really good job with Fastlane, and then now that Twitter is, like, running it he now has a full team to work on it yeah it's pretty impressive it, it gives me a well not that i don't have plenty of them but a person to look at and think well he's way better than i am so i have something to shoot for <laughs> you could be the next felix kraus no i don't know i don't have we that much energy <laughs> Yeah, no, it's the energy. It's like the persistence too. Like he responds very quickly and makes changes very quickly, and that's what got Fastlane to become known as like the thing for doing the like code signing for deployment. It's a hard problem to solve. With them. Yeah, the ease of use that he figured out. Like, I mean, there's not a lot of UI, obviously, but just just the experience of it is amazing. Yeah, I think it's fun too. Like you know, it's full of emoji, full of colors. There's obvious care and attention that's been put into everything from the readmes to the user interface. That that it really does shine well because it's very easy to make a command line interface that is very Spartan, but to make something that has information hierarchies and things like that, it's just not that common. Yep, agreed. Very cool. Okay, well, let's let's get to the picks. Andrew, what do you have for us? I've just got one pick today, and my pick is the smart keyboard, which I know it's not news, having been out now for, I don't know, nine months or something. But I bought an iPad Pro oh, a few months ago, and I did not get a smart keyboard with it. I thought, well, I, that's not what I use my iPad for. And then I decided to, kind of on a whim, to get one, I don't know, three or four weeks ago, and it has completely changed my experience with, with the iPad. So I... I 
am using my iPad for all kinds of stuff that I did, did not use it for before, and, and that means I'm actually just using it a lot more than I used to use it. It has, in fact, replaced my laptop for a lot of stuff. Uh, I started a new job a month ago, and a month and a half ago, and I uh, often a lot of a lot of what I'm doing at my new job is you know taking notes and on Slack and Twitter and answering emails, and it's really typing heavy stuff, and it's also stuff that the iPad does really well. So, smart keyboard is a worthy addition to your to your iPad Pro setup. That's my only pick. Awesome, Lane. My pick today is. I got some new headphones on Prime Day, whenever that was, two weeks ago. And I've tried tons of like over-the-ear headphones, and they've never really worked for me. And I don't like noise canceling because it gives me a headache. However, they had these, uh, they're called Bose Sound True Around Ear Headphones 2. That's the, the full technical name. And they are amazing. They're like totally life-changing for me because I can use them for hours and hours. It doesn't bother me. And it's like this Zen workspace of excellent music, distraction-free. Totally would recommend. Very nice. So I've got one pick. I'm going to pick curlbuilder.com. So if you're working with client stuff, working on iOS, you know, a lot of times we're testing a API, making sure stuff is going correctly. So we want to do our, our posts, our gits, our puts, and stuff like that. And if you're using Postman, things can get a little flaky sometimes based on some caching, just how it's done. The gold standard for doing API requests is curl. And I can never remember any of the curl flags. I, I can't. I, I can somewhere and I copy and paste them. But if you use Curl Builder at the website, curlbuilder.com, you can go to it and you can set the HTTP method, URL, JSON content, so it'll generate a curl command line for you, and it'll help you out. So you can do your tests for your APIs and tell your API team to fix their stuff and have proof. So that's my pick. I am bookmarking that immediately. Thank you. (laughs) Orta, what do you have for us? I think my pick is some old technology. It's a thing called Injection for Xcode. It's a tool that was a plugin that was created for Xcode five years ago and is still relevant now that allows you to inject like Swift and Objective-C at runtime into a running application. Last time I was working in Objective-C and Swift projects, I was uh, starting to work on building that into my tests. So I think this is a really useful infrastructure for anyone building like iOS apps. If you're not willing to move to React Native to get all that for free, then injection for Xcode may be a way to speed up your development process. Very cool. So that's all we have for today. Orta, thanks for coming on the show. Learned a ton. Thanks. We'll look forward to future episodes talking about danger. Awesome. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, Orta. Bye, everyone. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.